Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for those who could use some help studying or preaching from the Hebrew Bible. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rosie Candethal. We're both PhD candidates in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And our fabulous colleague, the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, is off this week. The first reading for June 19th is 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 15a. This is Elijah's encounter with the still small voice of God at Mount Oreb. A fascinating text. And Tim, you're up this week. What do you have for us? Well, uh, for starters, I should note that this is a text that we've treated before on the podcast. So if any of you out there are looking for more insights from 1 Kings 19, do a search over at firstreadingpodcast.com, and our previous episode on this passage will pop right up, especially focusing on Elijah's emotional, mental state in that first part of the reading. But I want to focus more on the latter part of the reading, the encounter at Horeb. Okay, great. So isn't Horeb the name for Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy? Yes, and also in a few spots in Exodus. The different names for the mountain of God in the wilderness is one of those clues that there are likely multiple sources behind the compiled Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. According to the theory, the name Horeb is probably attached to northern traditions from the kingdom of Israel, while the name Sinai comes from southern traditions that are connected to the kingdom of Judah. And actually, that schematic fits here, since the Elijah tradition is concerned primarily with events in the northern kingdom. Okay, that's really helpful background. And now that we have our geography straight, what other insights can we glean from this text? Well, uh, actually, your instinct to remember Deuteronomy seems pretty on point. This story takes Elijah physically to Mount Horeb in order to recall the Israelites' encounter with God during their exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land. Elijah's 40-day journey to the mountain, in verse 8, is another hint at this connection to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 4 recalls that God spoke to Moses and the people out of the fire at Horeb, just as God had initiated Moses' call in Exodus 3 out of the fire of a um, burning, not burning up bush, also... (laughs) also at Mount Horeb, as it happens. Yeah, as, as you've said, these Exodus and Deuteronomy allusions seem pretty strong. Uh, I also think about the scene where Moses encounters the presence of God while being hidden in the cleft of a rock on Mount Sinai. Yes, yes, that's, uh, that's Exodus 33 to 34. And in our passage, especially in 1 Kings 19, verses 11 to 13, Elijah is hidden in a cave on the mountain, while these powerful natural phenomena happen just outside the opening. Um, And, you know, this is curious, as a sort of side note, it's intriguing that the Exodus 33 encounter is from the Sinai rather than the Horeb tradition in the Torah. So Mm. it's actually a little out of place as an allusion in our first Kings reading at Mount Horeb specifically. But interestingly, there's a doublet in our first Kings text. The conversation between Elijah and the Lord happens twice, in verses 9 to 10, and then again in verses 13 to 14, with identical wording. And sandwiched in between them is this allusion to Moses' theophany in Exodus. Uh, 
So one reasonable conclusion would be that a Judahite editor who was familiar with that Sinai tradition from Exodus added these verses 11 through 14 precisely to make that connection to Moses' experience of the glory of God. Oh, wow. That's pretty fascinating and also a really generative possibility, right? But if there is a connection there, why is it that in verses 11 and 12, the Lord is not in the wind, the earthquake, or the fire? Mm, That's a great question. I think the connection is real, but it's not only a positive comparison to the ancient Horeb and Sinai traditions, there's also a contrast being presented here. In our story, Elijah has taken his complaint back to the source, right? He wants an audience with God at God's home base. He wants God to speak to him like God spoke to the people of old. He Mm. wants an encounter with God like Moses encountered God. So going to Horeb is like Elijah's way of saying to to God, like Moses did, show me your glory. Mm. But as it turns out, the way that God directs Elijah is not going to be the same as God's direction in the past. All the pyrotechnics are still there, right? But God's voice, God's direction was not in them. God had something entirely new for Elijah. And unfortunately, the lectionary reading cuts off right before we hear what that was, Ah. chopping off right in the middle of verse 15. The, The unit itself continues beyond 15a into, surprise, surprise, 15b, and on until at least verse 18. Elijah's instructions are to anoint new kings in Aram and Israel and to anoint his own prophetic successor, Elisha. Uh, Elijah has fled to Horeb because he fears that it's the end for the worship of God. But it turns out it's not the end. It's only a transition to a new day. Oh my goodness. This is great. Do I sense a preaching angle? (laughs) You might. Uh, I would probably connect this passage to the possibility of newness and transition for congregations who would be hearing a sermon on this text. Mm. What got us here in the past may not be the recipe for the future. God is not bound to always do things in the same ways. And also relevant to this passage, God's work in the world is not solely dependent on any individual. Elijah is so hung up on his sense that he's the very last surviving prophet of God. And yet God says in this passage that there are 7,000 faithful worshipers preserved in Israel, a symbolic number, meaning there's plenty of others, Elijah. It's not all on your shoulders. Hmm. So I think this would be relevant in a sermon that's encouraging elders in a congregation to seek out and mentor up-and-coming leaders in the community. Of course, those are just a couple directions you could go. That whole section in verses 1 through 9 is also really potent. And I, again, highly recommend Rachel's take on that section from our past episode. Yeah, definitely. And thank you for adding to the possible directions that preachers could take on this fascinating text today. Of course. Well, that's a great place to wrap up for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening. And a special thanks to those of you who support this work financially. If you'd like to donate, you can find a PayPal button on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. We also have all of our back episodes there, as well as info about our guests and hosts. You can also find us on Facebook. Follow, like, comment, share our posts there. That interaction helps the podcast reach new listeners, so we really appreciate that. Thanks also to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for their support. 
And until next time, I'm Rosie Candifle. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you have a great week.